Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we chat to our own Senior Design Manager, Jonathan Coleman, about the evolution of content design and evolution in general. Jonathan Coleman leads the global content design team here at Intercom. He's a Webby award-winning content designer and a keynote speaker who's appeared at over 80 events in eight countries on five continents. It's a really interesting chat where we cover how the discipline came to be, Jonathan's own path to working in it, and how Intercom sets itself apart in our holistic approach to this fundamental role. We also managed to touch on a broad variety of topics, including, but not limited to, comic books, flat earth conspiracy theorists, and J.R.R. Tolkien. If you enjoy my chat with Jonathan, make sure that you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing at iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or your usual podcast platform. John, we're delighted to have you on Inside Intercom this week. Do you want to kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. You know, I've recently arrived here in Ireland to join Intercom, so I've been here for about seven or eight months. And prior to that, I lived in Seattle for about a decade. I've worked for organizations like REI, which is an American uh, retail cooperative for outdoor goods, as well as nonprofit organizations like the Nature Conservancy And just prior to Intercom, about five and a half years at Facebook, I focused mostly on uh, content design or content strategy-oriented roles. But I've done things as diverse as uh, front-end code production, uh, marketing, analytics, and SEO. So a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. And to to speak to that, actually, you've an even more diverse background than that, I believe very early on in your adult life, you actually did some improv. Yes, I did. I was so introverted Mm. in college that I realized that without some sort of a strategy or mechanism or tool set, which is how I think about improv, it's a series of tools, really, I would probably be off living in the mountains with a pack of dogs and (laughs) Wi-Fi. So improv, again, gave me those tools I needed to get along in daily life. I was never a great improviser. I did used to perform throughout the Midwest. But what I was really after was the ability to get along with people and have positive interactions with them every day. And improv is what sort of helped me break out of my shell to be able to do that. And there's a little bit in improv of being able to anticipate what your partner or your partners are going to do. Do you find that you take that skill and apply it to your work as a content designer? Absolutely. Uh, There's this notion in improv of gifts and presence. Mm -hmm. And the thing with improv that everyone knows or most people know is this concept of yes and. Uh, And so you uh, sort of have this built-in rule of not negating people. But the more important one to me anyways is the idea of gifts. And so when we engage in things like user research or even just in our everyday collaboration across functions with product management or engineers, whoever it is you're working with, you're looking for those bits, those those aha moments um, that are really gifts the other person is giving you. And so when you're talking about the problem to solve or when you're conducting research and people are telling you about the problems they experience as they go about their lives or their work or using your product, those are the things you want to keep an eye on for. And when you discover them, the real key is to be curious and to keep asking why and ask follow-ups and really try to dig into the context. 
it's funny as you're describing that a lot of those skills and what you're saying you would apply the same to doing an interview so I'm going to use one of those skills and say yes and how then did you find yourself working as a content designer well, the thing about the content design or what's sometimes called the content strategy industry is that we have a really big tent. Um, it's a relatively young discipline. I think it got a lot of attention when Christina Halverson published her book about a decade ago, and it's been growing rapidly since then. But it's still just this small community, really, when you get down to it. And so what's really nice about that is that we're excited for other people who are excited about content and design. It's really that simple. So no matter where you come from, I started out my role, uh, my work as a, a technical writer. I used to write books for IBM. After that, I was a, a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. In content design, we don't care. We're just excited that you care about, about these things, about the user experience, about the quality of content and communications. So you'll find content design teams made up of People from technical writing like me, but also from design, from marketing, from journalism. Quite a few content designers come from there. Information architecture, so many other disciplines. So it's really a big tent and we welcome everyone into it, which is really how I found my way there. So I was doing marketing and search engine optimization and I read Christina Halverson's book. And, you know, it was one of those sort of <laughs> mind blown moments and I could see it so clearly this is a thing. Quality content is a thing. And while everyone says they care about it, not that many people actually do something about it or are tasked with doing something about it or still task themselves with doing something about it. Because there do seem to be a lot of misconceptions about what the job actually entails. I wonder, does that come from, as you say yourself, there's so many disciplines that end up working as content designers and probably at times the role bleeds into other roles. What are those common misconceptions? And, you know, can you clear a few of them up for us? Yeah, sure. Well, I think there, we're at the point in content design kind of strategy where there's, you know, a foundational layer of best practices, which is great. But it's still so new and the ways in which it's practiced change so often that um, people are inventing uh, new rules, new tools, just new approaches all the time, which is great. Um, that helps everyone innovate, especially when they share them out. So it's a little bit like the early days of, I don't know, something like baseball or basketball or golf where like, you know, we know there's something here. Uh, we're just sort of trying to capture what's, what's the what's sort of the foundational bits of it. So the good part of that is all of this innovation. And so the way I explain it to people is I try to remember this phrase that this information architect and good friend of mine, Abby Covert, uses. She's a uh, staff information architect at Etsy. Mm -hmm. And her whole thing is that we make the unclear clear. And that's it. Because that's how the, the discipline started, really, wasn't it, with the UK government and that idea of having to explain really, really complex ideas to literally everybody. Yeah, that's right. So Sarah Richards, who's a content designer with GDS and gov.uk, she sort of codified this term content design. And, and yes, that is exactly the problem she wanted to solve. They wanted to make things so simple and so useful and so understandable by such a rich, diverse audience of people that content design were the two things that really encapsulated that mission. She has a whole book about it called, appropriately enough, content design. And it's just brilliant. 
Do you think it requires of the person to be a little bit stronger, maybe on EQ, than other roles? It's very possible. This sort of emotional quotient, this idea really does come into it. What you really need to be a strong content designer is flexibility, adaptiveness, uh, clearly active listening, um, because you're always looking for those cues about what people really care about or the problems they're really experiencing. But perhaps more than anything else, what content designers really need to be good at is drawing together all the different strings of knowledge, information, activity, different repositories of, of work and code and history. What content designers often don't do is sit around at their desks just sort of plugging away at the content. What they tend to spend much more of their time doing is out talking to people, either customers, users of products, other people in the organization, Mm -hmm. because what they want to do is build all those alliances. They want to draw those people in, get them concerned, get them passionate about the content and the quality of the user experience, just as they are. But also they want access to all of that cultural information because they're trying, in, in terms of making the unclear clear, one of the things they're trying to do is to help the organization communicate in a very simple and very on voice sort of way. So you're really essentially at that front line between the product and the consumer. Absolutely. I I think that's a great way of putting it. I think you're at this point where it's not just you against your organization. Probably wouldn't pitch it that way, but it's something more on the lines of like you, the content designer, probably do not do all of the product communication Mm -hmm. because the product is so big and there's just you most of the time. Many content designers operate as sort of armies of one, where it's really just them in in this gigantic uh, company organization. So it's usually not you. What you're doing is you're helping everyone who touches communication in a product do what they do, but clearer and hopefully better and in in a way that creates a better experience for people. So, for example, it might be uh, something where like, oh, someone on the marketing team creates this experience or writes this bit, or it might be, say, an engineer who's going through all the different error states and coming up with error messages. You as, you know, the army of one probably can't be successful writing everything. That's okay. Yeah. So long as you enable everyone else to do what they do, but clearer and better. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. 
That's all to come on Off Script. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One thing that you have said before is that content design is essentially concept design. I really, really like that. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, even just now, we were focusing mm-hmm. on sort of what I think of as being words on the surface. Yeah. Here's this marketing message or here's this error message. It, essentially words. And content design definitely spends time focusing on those words on the surface. We, we tend to call that line of work UX writing or user experience mm-hmm. writing, where you're literally writing words in the interface. That really comes at the end. And I think the reason we focus on it so much is because it's the most visible artifact of the work. Meaning when you look at a product, you know, some mobile app or, or something that's interactive on the web, whatever it is, you're seeing those words first. And so, of course, the thing you focus on and, you know, people will, uh, if you're a content center, people will give you feedback on those words and how they appear, how they sound, things like that, which is great. You need that. But that's only the top layer. It's quite superficial in terms of what you do. Exactly. So the way that you do a good job at the top layer is not to start at the top layer. (laughs) It should be the thing you get to last. What you need to do is work further down the stack. And so the way I think about this actually goes back to a model probably one of the most famous models in user experience work that was created by Jesse James Garrett in his book, The Elements of User Experience. And uh, he shows this stack of five layers where he's got a surface, skeleton, structure, scope, and strategy. And a lot of content designers, by virtue of how their organization has structured them, only get to work at the surface. Okay. And that's usually because they are the ones who care most about its quality. They're the ones who can clearly see like how important it is and how essential it is to get the words right. And I suppose then as well, if if they're dealing with the consumer, that's what the consumer can see. So it's probably exactly. what they get the most feedback on. Yep, precisely. So that's what their leadership will focus on and, and, and so on. So they're the ones who are tasked with that. And their organization often ties their hands and won't let them get deeper in that stack which is what makes our work at Intercom a little bit different. So content design at Intercom is the entire stack. So it goes all the way from surface down to strategy, mm-hmm. where uh, content designers influence product, product direction, product strategy, things like uh, interaction design, things like information architecture. It's not just the words on the service. And so going back to your question, mm. where you said we talked about content design being concept design, I think that's really the key part of our work. So all those words on the surface are essentially how we represent what we think of as being concepts, ideas. Mm -hmm. And so what we spend most of our time doing is working in systems and not sentences. So that means that um, we're taking all those ideas, all those concepts, and mapping them out. And we're trying to see what are the entities that we're really talking about here. And if we can figure out what those entities are, then the challenge is, okay, so we have all these entities. How are they related to each other? And then how do those relationships provide value? Or perhaps, how should those relationships provide value? And if you do that work up front, if you do that work first, then writing words on the surface becomes a much more trivial exercise because if you've already built a really strong opinion about how the thing works into its foundational layer, into the system. And so if you get all those concepts right, then it's much easier to express them on the surface. That work often goes much quicker. And that's just because you've taken the time to understand the problem 
and to consider how to build a system, how to build the product around solving that problem. So if you had to pick a really simple, straightforward example of a system that works like that or, or a concept that's been so perfectly explained that people just get it, what would be your shining example of that? Yeah, so this is where we go into conspiracy theories. Ah, and, one of my favorite topics. Right? Who doesn't love these? And uh, let's talk about the flat earth okay. theory. So for a long time, and by a long time I mean most Thousands of, of years, most, most of, of, human history. of human history, if people thought at all about the shape of the earth, it would be that, oh, obviously it's flat. And that makes a lot of sense because people had a mental model that was based on their senses. So when they opened their eyes, even if they went up to a, in the top of a hill or, or a large mountain, what you would see was essentially this flat landscape that seems to extend forever. And if you were near an ocean or something like that, that ocean would also similarly seem to go on forever. So it made sense that you would have this mental model of the earth being uh, just this flat place. And it wasn't until much later with the advent of astronomy and, and later with actual rockets and things like that, astrophysics, that we could begin to see that, oh, the shape of the earth is not in fact flat. No. It was uh, during the Renaissance where we had the mathematics and the science to actually start figuring this out. And of course, we know that it's a globe. It's one globe of many. It's not even a globe at the center of the universe. It's just another globe. But the mental model of the flat Earth is so very powerfully strong because, again, it's what people see even now, even in an airplane for the most mm -hmm. part, unless you're very high up, you're going to see a flat world every time you open up your eyes. And so that mental model is so strong that there's still conspiracy theories about the Earth being flat. This is all faked by NASA or, so or whatever. So are you saying that flat earthers just haven't met the right content designer? Perhaps. <laughs> but that's where this idea of conceptual models mm -hmm. comes into play. Because if we can match a conceptual model, a series of concepts and how they're related and provide value, if we do a good enough job of coming up with that, then we can change people's mental models. And I'm going to suggest something now, and you're probably going to love it because it's basically positing content design as part of humankind's evolutionary development. Mm, but I have you read that. Sapiens at all, that book? Oh, no, I haven't. It's on my list. It's really yeah. good. It's called, it's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And it goes through all the different evolutionary layers of the human animal. But there's one point in it that's really, really interesting where they basically talk about the idea of humans to be able to accept a group narrative like the earth being flat or a globe or you know money having value or anything but they actually pinpoint that as being part of the evolutionary development that has allowed us to get to where we are these group narratives so in a way what you're doing is actually going back to a human instinct. That makes sense to me. I love that. You know, that's funny. Whenever we talk about content design, we often do this because of this Big Ten idea. We often talk about like, what's our favorite books? What did we learn? How are we mm -hmm. applying that learning to our practice? And the field is still evolving. So, you know, Dee, you might have a future in content design. Who knows? Watch this face. <laughs> um, on that note, actually, because, you know, there will be other people from Intercom listening to this. And if that's the avenue I decide to go on, tell me a little bit about how we approach, because I'm sure our listeners would love to know how we approach content design specifically in-house. Yeah. So we think that content designers work best when they work really deeply on a product. In a lot of different teams, in different companies, 
content designers, content strategists are stretched so far uh, across five products, 10 products, more than 10 products. And so it's really hard to do that depth of work across all of those five layers that Jesse James Garrett talked about. If you know, you're working on 20 different product teams, you'll never have the context you need. You'll never have the time to focus on the problem. All you're doing is dusting the words on the surface. My friend uh, Amy Thibodeau at Shopify sort of uh, codified this phrase, dusting the content. And that's not satisfying for a content designer, partially because they bring all this holistic thought and energy to solving the problem, but also because they are not going to do their best work that way. And because of that, the company, whoever it is, will be releasing an inferior product. It's not going to be as good as it could be otherwise. So at Intercom, that's why we really focus our content designers to work with just one or at the most two teams at a time. Is there a recent project that we've done that stands out as an example of that? So Kelly O'Brien is a content designer on my team working in our London office. And uh, there was a period where she worked across all of the projects that we were doing in London, which means everything from uh, bots to uh, reporting to uh, uh, all the other great things we build there, which is great. Those teams really appreciated having her time and they really needed her help. But we thought that there's such a big opportunity to keep building up and expanding and focusing on our work with bots in particular that really matched Kelly's skills and had tremendously outsized opportunity for content design. So what we did was to have her focus just on that. And because she's doing only bots now, she attends all of those teams' rituals from stand-ups to retrospectives to off-sites, everything. She is a full member of the team. And when you do that with your content designers, that team gets to know your content designer. They see every day mm. them showing up with commitment and dedication. So they know that they have skin in the game, if you will. And what they see most of all is the impact that content design has. It's one of those things that's really hard to understand unless you actually see it happening. And if you're only spending 15 minutes with a team every other week, they can't see it happening. But when you're there working in person with product designer, with product manager, with group of engineers, with an analyst, marketer, then you get to see it. And that impact becomes much more deeply felt. And the team will start to draw the content designer into uh, their strategy sessions, their road mapping process. And what happens is that over time, you start to build better products. And that's because you've worked in content design and the systems thinking from the ground up. And so is it really, in a sense, as simple as just having a team of people as opposed to just having the one person. Absolutely. And it's also an illustration of why just working on the words on the surface yeah. isn't going to be effective enough. You really have to get down to that system level. You really have to design the concepts before you design the content. That makes so much sense. So if I'm listening today and I've realized that maybe I've missed a trick and I really should have invested in a content design team for my organization, what would one do to go about setting one up? So I would argue, based on uh, what we've talked about, that content designers can do more when they do less, but do it better. So again, most content design teams in the world are multitaskers. They're focusing on, on all of the organization's products at one time. We do this because, you know, content design is still an emerging field. And we decide that, hey, maybe if we try to do everything, then someone will finally notice us and someone will finally see what we're capable of. And I just don't believe that. Based on my experience, I believe that content design impact is most deeply felt when content designers work on a one-to-one -one basis with 
product designers, product managers, the product team. I think this is the only way to have their impact be deeply felt and understood. So for people who are starting up uh, content design teams and want to make them highly effective, I'd say do less, but do it better. Focus on just one product per person at a time. So one thing when we spoke before, you quoted Donald Norman, author of The Design of Everyday Things. And he had that lovely line of design is concerned with how things work. So I wonder, just to get more of a sense of you, do you have a favorite designer of any discipline, <laughs> um, whether it's furniture design or content design? And why is that? Absolutely. So just a real quick on that Donald Norman quote, that was life changing for me when I mm. read it. Because up until reading that book in school, I had thought design was about making things pretty. Yeah. Uh, or if you're into modern art, making them abstract. And so Dumb Norman really changed my thinking there. Yeah, I was in the Museum of Design in Helsinki a couple of years ah, ago. Oh, yeah. And they had a whole display on a watering can that had been <laughs> beautifully and perfectly designed so that it could be made out of one piece of plastic and it could be easily reproduced. It was perfect for its requirements and it was cheap to make. And it like, it just, it really struck me that something so practical could be also a thing of great design. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Alvaro Alto, great finished yeah. designer, lovely finished designer. So that's the thing. That is like design for purpose, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's about simplicity of use, uh, simplicity of production, I'm sure, probably savings and cost as well. So design doesn't just make things pretty. Donald Norman said it's concerned with how things work. In product design, we're especially concerned with how design solves a problem. So similarly, content design, not just about writing the words, not just about making the words sound pretty, although it can. Mm -hmm. Pretty words are great. But what's even greater is determining what things mean. And that is what content design is concerned with. But to answer your question, favorite designer yeah. is super nerdy. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. You ready? I'll gonna... I'll, I have Google at the ready here. Okay. We're going to turn the nerd factor up a bit. And uh, I'm going to say J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, okay. Obviously, uh, I know who that is. So, um, because he designed an entire world. Because he designed an entire world, but um, few people know that he also did all of the original artwork himself. He was right. a great drawer of trees, Mr. Well, Tolkien was. Well, that really was. is the holistic approach then. Yeah, so he didn't just write the words. He didn't just create the story. What he was really interested in was creating languages. And he spoke with uh, several publisher friends who informed him that no one was really interested in a book of fake languages needed a story to go along with it. And that is the thing people are interested in. So we only created the story and therefore the world of Middle Earth and, and all the worlds before Middle Earth as a way of creating languages. But you were talking about cultural narratives and group mm -hmm. narratives. He understood the value of narrative and transmitting ideas that he cared about like language. But he also did the artwork. And so if you want a more modern version of something like that, comic books are very okay, similar that makes a lot of sense in terms of how they're produced and how they're conceived and the sorts of stories and experience they have even comic books as products they're very similar to how we design products as well there's usually an artist and a writer uh, working together along with in, in a comic book setting you know a letterer a, a colorist an editor things like that we build products in a remarkably similar way it's funny because you've identified to kind of types of fiction there, but both of them operate within a universe, like more so than a lot of other types of fiction. Like, you know, very often a writer will write a book 
and that book is a standalone universe. Whereas for comic books and certainly with the Lord of the Rings books and the wider ilk of it, they all operate in their own universes. So it's interesting that you've chosen those. Yeah, absolutely. But they're also products. You know, the publishers of Lord of the Rings don't just want you to enjoy the story. They want you to buy the book and recommend it to friends. They want you to go see the movies and and get the new books. And and, uh, the Amazon series is coming out. Um, Similarly, Marvel or other comic books publishers, my favorite being Fantagraphics, they want you to buy their books. And the authors, the creators also want you to buy them. So they are products. These are things that are for sale. They're packaged. They even have a job to do, which is to entertain or perhaps to inform or change the way you think or get you invested in some drama, something like that. So they're very similar to products. Okay, great. I wasn't expecting that answer, but I really, really like it. Lastly, before we let you go, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really enjoyable chat. I just wanted to check where people can keep up with your work. Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me on. Folks can follow me on Twitter at Jay Coleman. I'll also be speaking at a Web Direction Summit in Sydney, Australia, near the end of October. Great, busy bee. Well, John, thanks a million for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.